In a field one summer's day, a grasshopper was hopping about, chirping and singing to its heart's content. An ant passed by, bearing along with great toil an ear of corn he was taking to the nest. Why not come and chat with me, said the grasshopper, instead of toiling and moiling in that way. I'm helping to lay up food for the winter, said the ant, and recommend you to do the same. Why bother about winter, said the grasshopper. We've got plenty of food at present. But the ant went on its way and continued its toil. And when the winter came, the grasshopper had no food and found itself dying of hunger while it saw the ants distributing everyday corn and grain from the stores they had collected in the summer. Then the grasshopper knew it is best to prepare for the days of necessity. Yeah, that's a that's a great bummer story there, Jason, about a dying a starve a, a grasshopper that's starving to death. Um, here's a here's 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 a tweak on that story. Um, right. Around the mid October, the ant realized that the average life expectancy of an ant is about sixty <laughs> days, and that he wasn't even going <laughs> to live until. Until winter, and maybe he should have sang a little and stopped to smell the roses instead of uh, living his life like his dad did and ignoring the things <laughs> that really count in life. <laughs> you screwed up the fable. So I don't know. But then the grasshopper, they have an average life expectancy of 12 months. So really, maybe, maybe they should have, you know. I think well, if it's anything like the movies, the grasshoppers come and actually, you know, put the ants into servitude and steal their corn and grain. That which works is too. how, which is how the Nature Channel says life should be. Welcome to the Thrivecast. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm, I'm Greg, and we're so glad that you came uh, back for another episode. This is the July twenty. 20- 14 episode of the Thrivecast. And Jason, if I'm not wrong, this marks the beginning of our fourth year of podcasts. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We just finished up our three years of uh, building and making podcasts, which is amazing. And we're starting our fourth year. Um, Hopefully people will let us do that. But today we're going to be talking about something really important. Um, Greg, one of your great crafts, which is telling stories, uh-huh. and we we have a cool article we want to talk about, but uh, we kind of want to dive into mine and yours uh, experience right. with this, right? Well, right? And that's and that's the whole point of the Aesop fable that we had at the top of this is that there's these stories that have been around for hundreds of years, and the reason that they've lasted so long is because stories are powerful tools for communicating uh, not just information. They they communicate emotion. They communicate culture. Um, I remember, uh, gosh, this was back in 1986. I was going on a, a church wow. mission trip to uh, Mexico, and they had us read this book about how to like operate cross culturally. And uh, one of the <laughs> things it says it said, you know, learn learn the cultures. Uh, you know, stories like that, like the, the, the stories that they tell the kids, because that is a, those are just, uh, those are uh, imbued with so much uh, information about what that culture's values are. Well, cool. So we have an article, a Fast Company article, but before we dive into that, Greg, I think you're a master storyteller. And I mean, I've got two favorite posts you've written, and you write for Going Concern or Have, and you wrote you write for the, the Thrival blog post, uh, and your stories they're they're well known, <laughs> and I kind of want to dive into some of the how you make those well known, and maybe how that applies to our readers. But my two favorites are the Liberty Tax uh, posts okay. you've done on the Thrival blog, and the Vietnamese Dongs uh-huh. post. Uh-huh. <laughs> About. Those are my two favorite. Now, here's why they're my favorite, because I freaking laugh my head uh-huh. off. Um, but also, they really prove a huge point. And it, I don't know, it seems like you've done a, a lot of work to create the stories, but they really drive home a huge point. And one thing Jennifer mentioned, our producer, when she was mentioning this Aesop's Fables, is she said stories become so powerful in cultures that you no longer even have to tell them, you can reference right, them. Right, and and that and it means something. Like I can reference the Vietnamese Dong post that you, the point made in uh-huh. that, 
like for example, here's an example. Um, if you if you were at the last deeper weekend, we don't want to have any inside jokes. But if you mention the word right. Menards, uh, that store, uh-huh. everybody knows what that <laughs> right. means. It's an inside right. joke. And this, you know, and it's interesting. This Fast Company article had a quote by John Steinbeck that said, "A great lasting story is about everyone, yeah. or it will not right. last. The strange and the foreign is not interesting. Only the deeply personal and familiar." Right. Which, which that talks about, you know, not having inside jokes, or for the community and culture that does have an inside joke, it's actually very right. really good. Right. So, how do you write your stuff? I'm interested in and in how it applies to okay. listeners. Well, well, I think uh, in terms of how I write that stuff, a lot of what I do, like, uh, like, let's, I mean, we'll just take take the examples that you that you said. Um, with the, uh, I, I put myself into situations that will lend themselves to good stories. Like, yes, like for do. instance, I, when I found out about Vietnamese dong, because that, that whole thing, that the whole Vietnamese dong thing started with me reading something about how the, the currency of Vietnam was the most undervalued currency. Actually, no, I was trying to write a joke about Bitcoin and I was trying and, and, and for Twitter, and I was trying to figure out what the most undervalued currency was, and I found out it was the currency of Vietnam, which has the awesome name of the dong. And then all of a sudden, it was like I, the the story became the whole idea of me trying to purchase some dongs and then trying to resell those dongs, which I which didn't just stay in my head. It wasn't just one of these things where it was like that would be. That would be funny to 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 get to get my hands on some dongs. It was that I actually <laughs> did it, and then I tried to resell those dongs for a profit, and I try and I tried to push the envelope for and it and worked, it, and it worked. And but but that's the thing. Even if it had failed miserably, even if I was completely unable to purchase any Vietnamese dongs, the fact that I actually tried to do that, or if I wasn't able to sell them for more than what I bought them for, it all would have been great. It, it would have been a great story just to actually try it. And I think that for me, that's the key: is don't just have a an idea in in your head. In my for for me for this whole idea of trying to because my my why is to make boring stuff funny to be unexpectedly entertaining. So you take something as dull as foreign currency exchange or as commodities versus non-commodities and you try to try to make them uh, interesting and 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 yeah, that's that's the whole thing, taking concepts from conceptual to real life. Uh, and I think okay, I think so that's in, the key. So, so in your mind what you do when you're crafting a story is you craft the story first. And you go, would it would it be interesting if this was true? And you actually, so you intentionally tried to see if the story is true. Do you you craft it in your head first? Well, not so much because I don't know where the story is going to lead me. I didn't know if I'd actually be able to to buy some dongs when I went to Liberty Tax. I mean, there was a chance that they would get. You know, I was assuming that they'd have crappy customer service. I didn't think their customer service was was that bad. Uh, you know, there were the, the one part that was really crappy was their pricing and how they gave me that. So I really focused on that, but there would have been, you know, there's a, there's a possibility I could have gone and could have had an amazing experience, which would have been valuable even in and of itself, because the whole idea is that we as, uh, accountants as tax prep professionals, we don't have a chance to get out there and see what the competition is doing we don't get to do that enough. So if they're kicking our butts, that's a story worth telling. If they're failing miserably, like we kind of hope they are, that's also a story. And I got two stories about how they <laughs> failed miserably out of that. But the whole thing was, I think Liberty Tax sucks at doing taxes. I won't know until I actually go and have an experience there. So Okay, so you're so it it, it sounds like when you're crafting a story. You're you have to do a lot of work to make a story to make a story or to make a story relevant maybe to your customers. You actually have to put yourself in situations that create stories. I think story. both. I think it's not you don't have a story until you do something 
uh, until you've actually done something about it. But also the fact, I mean, I'm not doing anything that's not that, that, that anybody else couldn't do. Everything that I've done is very accessible. You know, there, there's the going concern post I did where I went and tried to give plasma and I gave blood and I went, went to a, uh, thrift shop. And it's like all that stuff is things that anybody could do. Uh, but I did them and I had this intention for why I was doing them to try to see if I could write off the value of a blood donation on a tax return. And, uh, because, (laughs) because it says you can save three lives with every donation. And I think life is priceless. So I think I wouldn't have to pay any taxes this year if I gave blood once. And that was, (laughs) <laughs> that was sort of the start, but then I had to, so again, that's the, that was the concept and I had to make it for real. So, but, but so that, so that's my thing is you, you have these, you know, my stories, obviously I'm trying to, I'm trying to create, put myself in situations that'll lend themselves to humor, but here's where I think we, we, what we need to talk about is, and, and you touched on it with something that Jennifer said that, that, uh, stories are, well, I don't know. Do you think stories are what make culture culture? Particularly, and I'm particularly talking corporate culture, like your business's culture. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So I, we, you and I talked about this offline a little bit, and and yeah, I think what was amazing that you brought up was, um, okay, we all have a, a why in our company, or you know, we, <laughs> if we you should. Don't, that's something you're we care a about. Loser. You're a loser. But we also have core values. And these are things, these are how you live out your why. We have core values. And I didn't realize this, but you said each core value should have a story behind it. Or that's what make that's what makes the core value strong to your culture. And I didn't think about that. But that's totally true. One of our core values is experimental. We are an experimental firm. And and what that means to our firm is if you're not making mistakes, we're probably not living out the core values the way we we say we want to. And so our our team is buying it. Like you know, our our payroll person recently said, "Hey, I just want you to know, I'm going to try this new payroll system." And I said, "Okay, go for it." It totally didn't work, and it cost the customer a stop payment fee. They got some penalties for paying uh, some stuff late. And you know what? We celebrated those penalties yeah, yeah, because those it. were a stake in the sand of us living up. And even in our retreat, I brought it up. I said, those penalties uh, are a statement of us living our culture right. out, and that is experimental. Right. And it was it was so right. awesome. And that's, and that's where that's where I'd want to go. Is this is it, is that if you if you have core any core value that you've listed out for your company, if you don't have a story for how you either risked or sacrificed something because of that value, it's not really a core value. It's something you wish was a core value, but it's not really a core value. And until you have a poignant story of something you did and and either failed or had a very probable chance of failing based on that core value if you say one of your core values is that we like to have you know to have fun at work well tell me a time when you sacrifice something to be able to have fun at work when you shut down the office took everybody to Tahiti for a week and and that whole week you had a new client who wanted who really wanted to get on board with you and left a hundred emails but you were having fun and decided no one could check emails that week and you lost that customer to kpmg that's a great story and that tells me that yeah you really because you had to sacrifice a bunch of money to get everybody to tahiti which was really cool of you but also you lost a huge potential client but but and then the fact if you can come back and not go oh we suck we lost this huge client but like you said just go <laughs> we had another party because we were living our core values and that's that's what we really so live for that, but that it's interesting it, it it's interesting that you bring the words risk and sacrifice into creating core values and it's because out of risk and sacrifice come the yes. stories that build your cult. But we're, again, this podcast is about telling stories. And you're saying you want good stories, sacrifice, yep. Yep. and risk. That's going to give you good stories. Call the banker. Try to buy dongs. You can't. 
you know, try to buy them online. It's hard. Try to sell them at a gay pride comedy parade. Uh, you and you do. You sold them for like I five sold, bucks a piece, and it's I a, sold them for. It's an amazing like story. A Forty time. Uh, mark up something, something like that. But you, you know what? You know what? That's I mean, that's an amazing story. And here's you know, just from the Dong article, uh, uh, you know, here's one of the statements. Although everything is commoditizable, nothing is impervious to differentiation. Right. Okay, so in that's that little gem is is squeezed in this Dong story. I mean, the whole article is a big yeah. story. And you're like pee in your pants. It's so funny. <laughs> but there's these little gems in there that say. From my sacrifice and my risk that I didn't know would happen or not came this gem that is so clear to me now. It's been so proven in real life that although everything is commoditizable, nothing is impervious to differentiation. And you know what I can say now? You know what? We're going to adopt that as a core value in our firm. We will not be differentiated or something like that. We yeah, were not. Yeah, that's probably a better. We, better we want to be different, yeah. <laughs> but that. But what you're saying is, what you're saying is, yeah, that's the wrong for, message to go. Oh, so we can. Yeah, so no. everything's commoditizable. So even we, me. We are not going to be made awesome. <laughs> so here's what you say. Here's the order: risk and sacrifice yeah. creates great stories, when which you, leads you to really yeah. embed. Culture in, into when your you core really values. Do it because, like, because seriously, I, when I I hated the core value. When I was a math teacher, you know, our our middle school had these core values that uh, you know that the principal adopted. I hated them because because we. <laughs> Because they, they meant, meant nothing. nothing, and the reason they meant nothing is that the rank and file teachers, you know, we our core value is that you know, you know, blah blah. Every child will be literate or something like that, and it's like, when have I sacrificed to make sure that my students were literate? I mean, and not not that you know, and there's great teachers that do sacrifice quite a bit to make sure that that's the case. But I think as a whole, they were a little bit. Uh, they they were a little vapid because they they uh, because as a as a body as a collective body of teachers I didn't necessarily see us sacrificing for those values I didn't know any stories that backed up those values. That's a, that's amazing. So you're saying probably in a big company if there are a lot of core values hanging on the mm-hmm. wall, the the employees or team may not align with it because. They have no experience right. associated. They can't go. I remember when the CEO jumped in a pool to prove that we are fun. Core exactly. Value. Or yeah, the, all that kind of stuff. And that's the cool thing is, I mean, and I'm kind of processing this as we're talking, but that's kind of the thing. Every single one of those core values, if there was an awesome story that had like an emotional uh, attachment to it about how someone sacrificed for each of those values at the school, not necessarily me, but I want to know somebody at the school who uh, who was who was sacrificing like that? Then uh, then then those the, all of a sudden those values have meaning. If it's a way that I could sacrifice as well, then th- all of a sudden they they have life and they 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 come to life. And I think that's what they need to have. And then then all of a sudden you got a culture. Then you don't just have a you know core values hanging on the wall or on something on your cubicle. Then all of a sudden it's for real. Is this how we tie this uh, to the listeners in firms yeah. in building these yeah. core values and in uh, and you and not only core values for your your firm or your company you can actually build stories around uh, working with your clients exactly. too well and that's the sweet thing because what because I think everybody has come across this idea of what is corporate culture and how do you build corporate culture and I think that just in preparing for this podcast, it was like, well, duh, the way that you do that is you make stories and you can use those stories on everybody because that corporate culture should be what differentiates you. So tell it to your customers. That corporate culture should be what helps you get the right people onto your bus. Tell it to your employees. Tell it to your prospective employees. That that those stories should be the stuff that gets people excited about what you're doing. So tell it to your bankers. Tell it to your to possible investors. That's what that's what this cult, that's what the power of stories can do is gives you this a library that you can access to help everybody get on board and align everybody with where you're going. But again, as a reminder, what comes before a story is risk and sacrifice. Yep. That which that's that was that was foundational. 
to me when you said that. It's not go make stories. It's go risk mm-hmm. something and they, take people to Tahiti and lose a client. Yep. Then you have a story. Yeah. And and from the story comes the culture. And then what you do is you mention that to people. Actually, you put those stories on your website. See, maybe exactly. we need to do that. We have core values, but people visiting our website don't know why experimentation is a core right. value of our firm. Right. We got to say, here, here's an example where we risk something and what we learned through it and why we believe more now in experimentation than we ever right. have. And and that's the thing. Anytime you need, because everybody's all, I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm alone. I can't believe that I am. But I always, I'm always grasping for different things to blog about on the, for the blogs that I, that I write. And the, the every time you take a risk, you just wrote a blog post. So mm. that's you. You have that's good at least stuff. you have a topic and you're wor- for that. You're working on. You can we talk about the one you're working on now? And you've taken some <laughs> yeah. risk, and some well, of it backfired. Well, be, that blog post will be out before this podcast is. So <laughs> okay. yeah, well, yeah. So we can mention it. So so I'm writing. A, I'm writing a, a blog post that's go to thrival dot com. It'll be on there uh, about how finding it, it's it's easier to find a drug dealer than it is to find a business coach and. Uh, <laughs> And you and you're looking for both I, right I, now. I, I was looking for both, and as a result, I put a post on my Facebook page that says, "Hey, I'm looking for I'm looking for a dr- anybody know how I can get a hold of a drug dealer?" And and I'm not, you know, and it's like I, I live in Utah. I know I could drive five hours to Colorado to go to a marijuana store. That's not going to work for me. <laughs> That's I need cheating. I need someone right. who will sell me illegal drugs. And I put that on <laughs> put that on Facebook. Uh, and I and I did. I I will say I hesitated for a few minutes before I hit post, uh, and then I realized later why. And I then had, your aunt commented and on my it. My aunt went off on me about how even <laughs> regardless of whether marijuana is legal or not, it makes you dumb. And she was very disappointed with me and hoped that it was just a joke. <laughs> and uh, but then even better than that, a couple of days later, I'm here at work and I get stopped in the hall by one of the doctors who's an owner in our building who I forgot some of them are my Facebook friends. And he says, hey, Greg, what was the deal with that post about drug dealers? So that was a fun conversation. Um, did, did the doctor say, if you're really looking for a guy, I know a guy? No, did he, say no that? He, he didn't. Fortunately, that guy's been to, he's, he's actually gone to comedy shows of mine. So I know okay. that he's, he, he knows he, he what gets, you're doing. He gets me. Um, but but here's, here's the okay. big thing, though, Jason, is this. Is, and and this is a quote I get from uh, from Pete Holmes, who's one of my favorite comics. He's got his own podcast, and I and I love it to death. But he says repeatedly on his podcast, he says that everyone needs to live a life that's worth commenting on. And I think that's the challenge here: is nice. if you're not, you can have these. If you're not risking, if you're not sacrificing, you're not really living a life that's worth commenting on. You may have values, but until you've actually done something about them, they're not for real. Hey, if it, let's talk about, we got to we got to move on to our awesome interview really quick. It, it, yeah, well, it's cool. We're going to have Adam Davidson, and he's going to talk about a story he's yeah. writing, and it's about. The public profession of accounting and its future, which which that I mean, that's going to be a a totally awesome story. But, you know, you know, one company that comes to mind um, that that lives out their culture is Patagonia. Okay, right. Uh, The founders are like, you know, we're total hippies, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, when they say we love the earth, I mean, they really love it. And when they say, let my people go surfing in the book that they wrote. They really mean that. Right. <laughs> so there so when people come in and they say, We want you to know our culture is this and we ain't playing around, mm. you have to take off on Friday and go surfing. Right. If you don't surf, you're a loser, first of right. all, and you we're not gonna hire you. Right. That I mean it means something. So it sounds like when you're taking sacrifice to say, Hey, everybody go surfing or whatever mm-hmm. and you believe it. Then mm-hmm. you got to keep sacrificing too. Meaning now you got to right. give everybody time off to go surfing, and if they're right. not surfers, you actually beat them up and harass them and, and get fire them, them. Get them off your bus. Yeah, get them off your and bus. That's another sacrifice you've made based on your values. That's exactly that's right. right. That's exactly right. It's cool. Um, so did so did we tie this down to people that run, are running companies and firms? I think so, and I do think we we need to do this real quick. Here's a couple things, and there should be some links to this in your show notes. Uh, there are some good articles about how to craft a story because there is there is kind of the the 
the jump you got to take from living out a story to actually creating that story. And it's not easy. Um, anybody who's, who's made up stories for their kids knows that it can be draining to, to actually craft a story. But here's some places where you, where you can help. We got a, a fast company article about how, uh, about how stories work. Look for the fast company article. Do you have the title of that? <laughs> Yeah, the simple science to good storytelling. There you go. There's another thing. There's an HBR article that talked about this thing called Freytag's Pyramid, which is basically a storytelling structure. Also, if you got Dan Pink's book To Sell as Human, uh, in his chapter on pitching, one of his pitches is called The Pixar Pitch. That also gives you a good framework around which you can structure great. the story that you're that you're trying to uh, create. So those are some great resources if you need some help um, yeah. doing getting the stories. Right. So okay. So we got to we got to get to our guests, but do we we want to mention our sponsors real quick? We do our big sponsor. They've been there since day one. We're starting our fourth oh. year with these cats. This is it's Avalara. Uh, you can find out about them at avalara.com. These guys are the reigning champions. I think they. I mean, they uh, sales tax compliance, which sucks if you have to do it by hand, <laughs> but which is awesome when you go to Avalara because they'll make it super, super slick, super straightforward, super streamlined, and super easy. Go to Avalara.com. It's it's because they do everything for you. So they give you the tax rates, but also the product taxability. So not only the right rate for your city, but is that product taxable and how they deliver that through their amazing engine. But then they, they do certificate management. They file the return. They'll pay the return. Exactly. They're hooked up to like a billion accounting systems. Uh, so it all flows into your is, accounting system. It's just, just uh, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So it's cool. Thank yeah. you, Avalara. Yeah. And we got to move on to our our storytelling guest. Super sweet guest. Yeah, let's do it. Let's get Adam Davidson on the phone. All right. Here's a little story for you. Once upon a time, there was a man who studied religion at the University of Chicago. Every day he dreamed about being a complete social outcast, so he ditched the ultra-popular field of religion and went into the combined fields of economics and liberal public radio. But then one day he found himself on the Colbert Report, which completely destroyed all his dreams, and he's been famous and popular ever since. That's our guest today, Adam Davidson from Planet Money on NPR. Adam, was that an accurate retelling of your life story? Um, it missed out some key details, and uh, but it hit the high points. Uh, I mean, a lot of it was accurate. I, you know, we don't think of ourselves as liberal. I want to say we think of ourselves okay. as objective reporters. I, and I, as and accurate, I agree. Right. I couldn't be. I couldn't agree more. Well, so Adam, welcome to uh, the Thrivecast, man. You're a master storyteller. Actually, you're you're telling an awesome story now in a book, and we want to know more about that. Greg and I have been diving into. Telling stories and how it takes risk and sacrifice to create stories, to build a culture in a company, um, and maybe you can add to that. Um, so, Adam, first of all, how did you and I meet? I mean, maybe that's a story we should dive into for a minute. Yeah, absolutely. And I should say it's thrilling to be on the podcast. I am a real fan and and um, have learned a lot from you guys and cool. from your guests. It's um, it's awesome. Um, so I am uh, writing a book about how the economy is changing and how people can compete in the book. Uh, I'm sorry, and how people can compete in the global economy. <laughs> and um, it's basically going to be profiles of, I don't know exactly how many, somewhere between five and 10 people who I find really fascinating and who are in some kind of traditional industry, but have figured out a new way to kind of revolutionize that industry. And really my, my star character, my, my jumping off point is Jason Blummer. Dun, dun, dun. What? Um, I, um, I came across you, Jason, because, um, I was interested in accounting. I knew there were changes in accounting. I knew that a lot of accounting had become sort of a commodity not really adding a lot of value and that I knew there, I had heard rumblings that there was sort of a revolution in the field. And I called around and this accountant in, in Ohio who I met because he was an accountant to some Amish friends of mine, some Amish <laughs> business people. Um, but he's not Amish. His name's Dustin Hostetler. He told me the guy you got to talk to is Jason Blummer. 
And so first I listened to a bunch of um, Thrivecast, and I was like, yep, that's the guy I need to talk to. Sorry, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's all right. I know my place. Uh, and uh, so I flew down. You and I spent a fair bit of time together, um, Jason. Um, you and I hung out in New York and Greenville. Um, I'm definitely going to come to Deeper Weekend uh, in November. Very cool. Nice. Um, and I'm, I was very sad not to come to, to last year's. And um, I'm happy to talk more about the book, but but that's how you and I uh, met. Well, cool. So why are you telling – okay, so you told us a little bit about – but why do you think this book is a story that needs to be told about the accounting profession? Right, and I should say the whole book isn't about the accounting profession, but I think the accounting profession is indicative of um, a lot of trends going on in the economy, which will be very familiar to Thrival members and, and your listeners, and will also be um, you know, relevant to lots of people in lots of fields that have nothing to do with accounting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the basic assumption of my book, and here I am going to kind of tell you a story. I'm going to tell you the story that I'm constructing out of my Love reading it. of economic history and and the last 200 years um, is that sort of the main driving force of the 20th century uh, economy in America and and in much of the world was commoditization, normalization, routinization. So if you think of the Ford Motor Company and the assembly plant as, you know, models of of the the main growth driver of the economy, you're talking about... um, you know, a 19th century economy in America where there's lots of artisans, lots of people doing all sorts of things without having clear categories. Mm. So we didn't really have people called accountants, but we had lots of people doing things that look like accounting. And we also had craftspeople sort of hand building lots of, you know, furniture or buggies or clothes or food or whatever it is. And the 20th century was all about routinizing that, bringing it to scale, making it turning lots and lots of small entrepreneurial artisanal kind of practices into large mega corporations. And that involved, um, you know, that was back when commoditization, standardization were not seen as bad things. They were seen as great things. Mm. And, um, and if you think of the iconic 20th century economy, 20th century company, you know, I think of Mad Men and, uh, you know, the TV show where there's, a company with lots of people running around. Whenever you watch Mad Men in the offices, there's all sorts of secretaries. There's like lots of accountants just doing work by hand. And there's really this one guy, Don Draper, whose job it is to think and tell stories and imagine and be creative. And, um, and the accountants are there to do routine stuff, and so are the drafts people, and so are the account executives, and, and, and so are the secretaries to, you know, handle correspondence or, you know, handwrite the ledger books and, and get the reports ready, all of that stuff. And um, a, a revolution has happened. A, a few revolutions happen to happen at the same time. One is technology, where we have computerization, we have you know, the Excel spreadsheet, we have TurboTax, we have the cloud now, um, and also global trade where we're able to kind of outsource and send overseas to lower cost countries, all the routine stuff. And in, in a way, technology, computers, etc., the internet and trade, Chinese factories, Cambodian factories, Mexican factories, work in the same way where they really bring the value of commoditized work down to the lowest price possible, where really an American can barely compete and frankly doesn't want to compete. Um, and so that leaves a space for that creative person. So, you know, we all have to become Don Drapers, mm. which is not to say we all have to become um, unfaithful, alcoholic, self-destructive, <laughs> oh, um, dang, horrible dang fathers. It, I but, thought that but, was... <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm going on and on, and I want to stop because one part of storytelling is you want to have a sense of your audience, and you don't want to just blather on and on without listening to, to questions and, and listening to what people have to say. But um, but in, in my mind, what that means is each of us is now, um, the value we're going to add, the, the economic value that we can exploit is going to come from being able to identify, but then also crucially articulate that 
special value that we are able to add, that unique value that we're able to add, rather than, hey, I'm going to be an accountant, I'm going to go work on a floor with accountants, and if I'm pretty good and don't rock the boat too much and kind of do what I'm told, maybe in five years I'll get a promotion, and 10 years after that I'll get a bigger promotion, and I'll never have to think too much, I'll never have to, everyone knows what I am because I'm a thing called an accountant, and that's all I need to be. Well, now, as everyone who listens to this Thrivecast knows, that's not all you need to be. You need to be a lot more than that. Well, so, so I have a question. So in the earlier part of the podcast, Greg and I were talking about if you want to craft a compelling story, and we talked about how it relates to core values within a company and stories centered around core values, you got to think, all right, this is a story, and you got to take some risk and sacrifice to start pursuing that story. So did you do that? Did you say, I wonder if accounting is an appropriate place for me to find a story of things changing? Sounds like you did. And then when you started pursuing it, lo and behold, it was true what you had found out. What if you had found out that it wasn't true? Would that have been bad? And you have no story, I guess. Right. I mean, and then there were lots and lots of ideas I had for stories that I wanted to tell. And when I pursued them, I, I quickly discovered there really wasn't the elements of a good story, either a compelling character or a real, well, usually you want a compelling character, but you also want kind of a series of events, um, a a narrative that unfolds over time in a compelling way. So in your case, Jason, um, there's a bunch of things I liked about your story. I liked the point, but I also liked that you yourself have a personal arc. You know, we talk about the storytelling arc where um, you kind of started life thinking you were going, and this is just classic, you know, myth storytelling. Yeah. It's probably, probably a lot like, is it, is it a lot like Freytag's pyramid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just say yes. Just say yes. I, I mean, Jason for, yes, yes, absolutely. So Sweet. Jason, um, you know, you started your life going down one path. You were going to be just that standard 20th century accountant. You didn't, as you told me, when you majored in accounting in, in college, you didn't really even know what an accountant was. Your dad was an accountant, but he never talked about his job. And, and your dad really was, and, he, and he'll tell you this himself because he told me it himself. He was just a kind of standard accountant. He wasn't trying to do anything special. He was just trying to do the job. And on the weekends, if he's lucky, maybe he could have some fun being himself. But <laughs> during the work week, he was, he was working. Um, and you went down that path, and you faced a personal crisis, and that crisis was that your work life was very unsatisfying, and there was some little Jason in there who wasn't able to get out, and you went through a kind of wandering in the wilderness period where you um, felt lost, and, and you knew you wanted something more, but you didn't know how to get there, and you made sacrifices, and you made less money, and you scared the heck out of your wife and your parents, and, um, and, and you came out on the other end, you know, wiser and, and able to help other people and, and you know, and, and doing an awful lot. And, and that's a great narrative. So I didn't want, you know, in any of my stories, I didn't want someone was born into a wealthy family, went to Harvard, was first in their class, and then became a star accountant at Ernst & Young. You know, that, wow. that to me isn't a boring, is, is a boring story. It doesn't have any surprise. It doesn't have any it's hard to empathize with those people or get excited about those people just because, all right, you know, there, there's no arc to it. It's just one direction. I, I went on dentistry. I tried to find a good dentist and I just kept finding like fairly routine stories. Nobody was that exciting. Nobody was that compelling, but that's okay. I mean, part of finding a good story is, you know, finding lots and lots of bad stories. I don't so, know right, so, right. so it does sound like um, in, in my life when there was there were some sacrifices and risks I had to take and I was basing those on I believe there's something better than what I'm living now. So I had to take a risk. So you're saying it is mm-hmm. true that the foundation of good story is often the key character taking a risk or sacrificing something to say, I believe there's something greater. Nobody's going to give it to me, so I'm going to sacrifice what I currently have, give it up maybe, to see if there's something better I'll get in return. Is that typically common to all good storytelling? I mean, I think all good storytelling, you follow a series of events in which there is surprising change. And, um, and. You know, usually, I, I don't know if I want to say always, but you, you, you know, certainly the easiest way to do it is there's a lead character who is you are sympathetic to in some way. That doesn't mean they're not flawed. 
you, Jason, may may be a flawed character. I would guess you probably are. <laughs> so is, thanks. So are, and, you know, it's hard to it's hard to follow perfect people. That's, yeah. that's hard to get that interested or engaged with perfect people, and and you want change. So, you know, to be honest, you can do a really good story about someone who starts off rich and ends up desperately poor and miserable. That's a good story too. But often that's not a story a business person wants to tell about themselves. Right. So for there to be a change, um, you, you, you need, you know, you, you, you want to have a moment where people are in one state and then Mm -hmm. end up in a different state. So if your goal is to tell a story about going up or doing well, you, you kind of have to start in, in a place of fear and, and difficulty. And, and that thing of kind of being lost and wandering in the wilderness and finding your way, I don't want to come out and say that's necessary for every good story, but that's certainly a bit, I mean, if you think of classic good stories, the Bible, the Greek myth, you know, um, you know most Hollywood movies that you would see, that's just the basic architecture of a good story. A sympathetic hero who's flawed, but you're but basically you're rooting for them. They're in one state, they go through chaos, and they end up in a different state. So they're the uh, the yeah. underdog issue, right? They're the yeah, they're the underdog. I mean, I, again, you know, there is a kind of story where you start with the overdog who gets humbled. I mean, that is a whole different kind oh, yeah, of narrative. Right. But um, um, so, so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm cautious about making universal statements about, you know, yeah. this is the only way to tell a story. But right. this is a good way to tell a story. This is a right. helpful way to tell a story. Well, and that and that really relates back to we we've talked to Joe Pine. He's the author of the book The Experience Economy, and one of the things he talks about is that. Uh, you know, you can kind of go up this hierarchy of a, you know, of selling a commodity to a differentiated product to selling an experience. And in his mind, the the pinnacle of that whole process is selling transformation. And I guess when we're talking about about businesses and business culture, you're really going to have the most powerful uh, stories for your corporate culture if you can talk about the transformations that have happened either to you know, the CEO of the company or to the clients of the company if their lives have been transformed, if they've been in one spot and end up in another spot. Those are, those are the compelling stories that people want to see. And what drives me crazy, so I'm a business reporter, I get lots and lots of press releases, lots of pitches from companies, and I also, you know, pretty carefully study how businesses tell their stories. And here's what drives Uh, me crazy. They're so afraid to ever say anything negative about themselves. Right. And so, and when you're talking about transformation, that's, you know, a a state change that's going from one place to another place. And like I said, if you're starting off awesome and you end up awesomer, (laughs) That's just not a good story. <laughs> right, right. That's not really a transformation. So, like, if you're launching a new software product or, or a new, you know, type of experience package or whatever, it, it is scary, I know, but to either tell about yourself or tell about a client and somehow communicate that things were not perfect – and then things were better. I mean, and it doesn't have to be awful. I'm not saying that every client, you know, every story has to be that the CEO was miserable and drunk and out of control, and then he found his way. But it has, there has to be some change, and that means if the story you want to tell is ultimately positive, there has to be some darkness there. Um, right. There has to be, I mean, you know, like, even, you know, I have a two and a half year old son. I read, you know, we watch some of the Disney movies, which are very syrupy and sweet and happy, <laughs> but there's darkness. There is, there yeah. is a moment where the hero might not make it, where, where things are looking pretty bad. And if you don't have that, and, and you've got to take that risk. And that means, you know, and I'm not saying you have to show all your garbage. I'm not saying that you have to, you know, embarrass yourself or scare people, but you have that, you have to do that. Or no, else, you mean like yeah, how, when, how's that going to be a good story? Like when Jesse was almost dropped off at the at the well, when she was dropped off at the Goodwill, is that what you're talking about in Toy Story Two? Yeah, I know, man. That that yeah, was rough. Right? I fa- I fast forward to that now, man, because I can't handle it. And then you put it with a beautiful, poignant song. You know, that's how the movies make you right. know uh, fit it. So, so Adam, let me ask you this: Is I mean, the do you see as a whole the accounting, the public accounting profession going through this change, or do you see some people doing it? Everybody should be doing it. I mean, what's the story 
overall, like in general, do you see about the public profession of accounting? How is it changing or should it change? Yeah, and I will say, like, you know, for, for this book, I've been reading a lot about accounting history and talking to accounting professors and um, and and my sense is a very small, you know, the, definitely the thrival people get this, I think. Uh, you get this, but it is still a very small percentage. I mean, my just here's a story I'll tell. And one thing I'll say about stories is they're never the truth. They're, they're, uh, they're a, a structure that you put the truth into, but they're not, you know, they're always oversimplifications or stylizations um, of some sort, but yeah. stylizations. Like, exactly. Like the but movie 300. raw data is not yeah. helpful. So you need to, you need, <laughs> you need to put raw data into some kind of structure, but you also need to recognize every structure has its own flaws. But, when I read about accounting history in the 19th century, incredibly creative. I mean, a, a point I like to make is the first vertically integrated factory the, um, the, in Waltham, Massachusetts, that Robert Lowell put together. The first time, you know, raw cotton comes in on one end of a factory and finished textiles come out on the other end. There's a bunch of machines in between. Um, it's amazing innovation. It kind of launched the American Industrial Revolution in the early 1800s. It took them a year to work out the engineering. It took them almost a decade to work out the accounting to figure out, because it was this new problem where you could buy raw cotton at one price, sell finished goods at a higher price, and lose money along the way. <laughs> because you know manufacturing beforehand had always been a one-step process. You hand the cotton to this woman, and you buy yarn from her and then you take the yarn and you give it to someone else who you, has a loom and you buy finished textiles but once you have multiple steps you need some form of cost accounting and and that's a new innovation and when you read about the 20th the 19th century economy these amazing innovations these amazing creative thinkers they weren't really called accountants they were called you know different things um, probably one of the biggest ones is Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, who really creates the modern corporation in the early 1920s using incredibly smart accounting. But what happens in the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression is compliance, and compliance mm -hmm. kills creativity. And it kills it for an interesting reason. You know, so there's the obvious reason that compliance you know, you, suddenly it's the law and you can't just come up with a system that works for you. You have to actually have, you know, gap and reporting requirements and, and all the stuff you guys have to deal with. But also it creates like guaranteed job security for everyone who gets a CPA uh, because right, right. there's so much compliance work that needs to get done that, it, you know, for the rest of the 20th century, there's just not enough accountants being put through schools to fill the need. And that's really dangerous because when there's, um, I mean, it's really great in one way. It was a real big win for lots and lots, you know, hundreds of thousands of people became middle class as a result. Um, but it was really damaging for creativity because it, right. it turned it into this commodity. And there's this fascinating moment in the late 40s when the accounting profession takes on hourly billing and it's explicitly hey, those doctors are making more money than us. We've got to come up with a way to really make our commodity you know, valuable. Um, and, and it's a very conscious strategy of the AICPA and the other accounting bodies to limit the supply to less than the demand so that there's higher wages. Um, but it kills creativity. And in, in the 70s, starting in the late 60s, but in the 70s, really heating up in the 80s, as global competition comes online, you have this surprising thing that the new creative work, the new kind of blue sky thinking isn't accountants, it's management consultants. And you have McKinsey and Company and mm, others yeah. explicitly, a sales point is we're not accountants. We're not those green eye shade people. We're not right. boring. We're exciting and da da da. And that should have been accountants, you know, because those mm, are the people, mm. as Jason, you all always say, you're in there. You have that intimate familiarity with the company's finances. You've built that trust. You're not some guy, you know, you're not a team of Harvard MBAs who show up for six weeks and fire 10% of the staff and then leave. You know, you're, um, you're in there for the long term. Yeah. But it wasn't accountants who did that. It was these outsiders. Oh. And, and it is amazing to me that you think like right through like 1920s, accounting is changing the world, transforming the world, making the industrial revolution possible, making all the growth that America experienced mm. possible. And by the 50s, just 30 years later, they're like a punchline to a joke. They're like the most <laughs> yeah. 
you know, just a cliche of the most boring people that you would kill yourself if you have to sit next to one so at you, dinner party. So you're saying, so you're saying there was a point at time in this history that you've been studying that accountants could have grasped hold of a change in their profession. They could have become the management consultants, um, but they didn't. They were in this uh, commoditized, compliance profession, which ha- which I guess hemmed in their creativity. Do you, do you look back and go, that was a key point when in history when accountants should have stood up and, and did not, and that's now hurting them, hurting the profession? Okay. Absolutely. I mean, I'd say the 1970s, this is a moment where, and I understand why they did it. It makes sense. Like if you're running some giant, you know, massive Ernst & Young type, huge accounting firm, or you're, you're one of the big four or eight or however many it was in 1970s, um, and, or, or you're running like a, you know, solid regional or city accounting firm and some smart aleck comes in and says, hey, I think we should be doing, you know, management consultant and creative thinking. And they're saying, you know, we sell, we sell reliability, we sell stability, (laughs) we got more business than we can handle. And I can hire a dozen of you and fill them up with audits and payroll and tax. So the last thing I want to be associated with is, you know, change and trans- and creative accounting. I mean, that's, what are you talking about? That'll destroy right. our position in the marketplace. And maybe right. it would have, you know, maybe they were right in the, in the 1970s. Maybe that would have been a terrible, terrible choice. Well, pro- probably would have been, wouldn't it? But now you're paying the price because they made that decision. Oh, right. Wow. Right. Well, yeah. Well, and I think, I think a lot of it is that, you know, and, and, uh, Adam, you mentioned this, that, that you saw the, the, uh, dissonance in 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 Jason's life, where it's like, well, I've got this, I've 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 sunk all this time and cost into becoming an accountant. Now I'm an accountant, and I'm a very unfulfilled accountant. And I would say that a lot of my uh, my experience within the accounting profession is that that's that's the typical accountant where they go, well, here's what I am, and this is what I do, and I can't I don't I can't go back and change my my prior choices. It sounds like what you said before is that we will find our future economic value by identifying and articulating our unique value. And I think, do you mean that in a personal and individual level or at a company level or at both? And do you think everybody actually has unique value? Are we all snowflakes? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yes, I think, um, so what I, what I'm working on is a chapter about Jason's life where basically I'm trying to like make poor little, 23 year old Jason, um, be, have the entire weight of this 19th to 20th century historical phenomenon, just like crushing his poor little soul. That is are awesome. you going to put, are, are you going to put photos in your book? Because I have one of him when he was a bass player for, I think it was called like Bon Jovo or something. It was something like that. Cause we can get that to you easy. Oh, we we definitely are describing the the Jason heavy metal years um, in great detail. But um, <laughs> but I think it's you know it it, it 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 is true for your profession, and I think that um, the so so are we all unique snowflakes? I would say yes. I think that well here here's the challenge. I think we all ultimately have some passion, and then there's also a market test there's that kind of Venn diagram of where does my personal passion meet some kind of market demand, someone who's willing to pay for it. And I think that is where the kind of creativity and the openness to, to changing things comes in. But my, my belief is that for most people, it's, it doesn't need to be a compromise. So, so uh, I mean, maybe for some people, I just want to, you know, create like, really abstract paintings that nobody wants to pay for and that's all I want to do and nobody wants to buy them and I'm out of luck. Maybe. That's kind of the world I grew up in, actually. I grew up in all artist housing in Greenwich Village in the 1970s when I grew up in a building full of people who did that choice. (laughs) I'm going to make no money and follow my passion. And if that's what you want to do, go for it. Um, But I do think that that there's a um, 
there, th- that for many people, most people, hopefully, certainly more people than currently are taking advantage of this, there's an opportunity to really explore your passion in conversation with the market. So, you know, as, as mm. Jason mm-hmm. felt dissatisfied with his account, and it, it is kind of funny, Jason, that you're interviewing me, but my answers are all about you, but <laughs> that's all right, because um, I have spent a lot of last year studying you. That's right. Um, <laughs> that as, as, as Jason was in his lost in the wilderness years, that was really a a period of like, wait, what do I like? What what fuels me? And is there um, uh, and and you know, I I think probably if you had your life to go do over again, maybe you wouldn't be an accountant. Would be my guess. But but you were an accountant, right. and that was a set of skills that were valuable. And but you you paid a lot of attention to what fuels me. Oh, these creative people, they really fuel me. And you and you saw, oh, there's a need they have that I enjoy filling. There's there's something that they're really good at being creative, and it's precisely what I just talked about. But they're not that good at figuring out the market test. They're not that good at figuring out how their creativity meets a market need. But I am good at that, and I like doing that with them. And and so that led you to this really specific niche, or you say niche, but in New York we say niche. <laughs> and um, and in a way, that's what Thrival's all about, right? Is finding how do I how does my passion match a market need? And you know, you could have said I only want to deal with black and white photographers. That's my real passion. Right. Well, maybe there's not enough of them, or maybe right. that market isn't going to meet your needs. So, so you've found this broader creative niche, and, and it's possible that that will expand or contract as time goes on. Um, but, you know, because I think it is an ongoing process of discovery, and you might right. one day wake up and say, you know what, I kind of hate hate these creative people now. I don't want to deal with them anymore. You might go on to something else. I don't know. Um, so I think it is an ongoing process of discovery. So I, I don't know. Does every single one of the 300 million people in America, you know, do they have this opportunity? I'm not sure. But certainly everyone listening to this podcast, anyone who's taken enough initiative to, you know, explore how to better their lives, yes. I so everyone so you're saying some unique passion. So you're saying you know, now, now in our economy is the time. Now is the time to explore this because the marketplace is in a position. I don't know if it's more creative than it used to be, but maybe you have more access to the people that will let you explore with them, like in co-creation with them. Will you buy this new creative thing? Will you perceive value in this new way I want to approach? It sounds like now's the time. Like is now the perfect time. Will the time go away in five years? Is now the right time or and the only time? Well, I think we're now moving into that economy. So it's always going to, I think this is just with us from now on that, oh. that the way I see it is it is kind of the night, you know, the best of the 19th century and the best of the 20th century. So if, if the 19th century is a craft economy, if, essentially, but it's a small local craft economy where your market is really whoever is like walking distance or horse riding distance from you. Um, right. and, and, your community of peers is very small because if you're the blacksmith in town, you're the only blacksmith in town. You know, you're, you, you don't want there to be a large community of blacksmiths in your town. And, um, and the 20th century is all about this mass commoditization, globalization. But now you get to do both. You get to be a craftsperson who, who really customizes their passion and, and really you know, hand makes their work and metaphorically or, or realistically, but then you have right. access to this global market or national market. You have access to these communities and thrival is one of the more successful, but I'm seeing these in lots of professions in journalism and in engineering and other places where people gather through the internet and sometimes in person to, to share these lessons with each other. Um, and then you have all these tools, you know, um, as, as one economist, Tyler Cowan says, you know, you either make, technology and global trade, your friend, or they're going to be your enemy. So, you know, I think the general thrival approach is, hey, the more automation we could do, the better. The more, the faster, the more awesome the software is, the better. Because I want to spend my ideal time spent auditing and doing like routine payroll is zero. Mm. So, um, so if I have to spend 10% of my time now, that's 10%. I'm not truly adding value. That's a great position to be in. Lots of accountants are not in that position. Right. So let me, you know, so let me software. Yeah. Well, I, this is, this is so fascinating to me. So as we're talking about crafting stories and telling stories, so ultimately I imagine, um, Adam, your book is going to not, end with me it's going to be it's going to start with a character but it's going to be 
this is the story of all people, or this is now the story of the profession of what it could be, because Greg has had changes in his life, which moved him into accounting. All the Thrival members had these had these wilderness years. I mean, you know, they've all dealt with it. So it's really, you, you've chosen me as a character, but it's really, it's a group of people you're talking about. How do you step back from a story and say, now, now reader, apply this to you. I'm actually talking to you. This is about you, maybe. And maybe you should become what I've written about. Do you step back from the story and make it broader and more general? I don't know. Yeah, it's this is you know this is for me like the super super hard stuff. So um, like so one thing that's really hard is I just chose sort of relatable characters, but that's actually hard. It's hard like like Jason. I love your story. I, I you know you become a good friend. I really care about you, and I care about your story. But it's and and I think there's a lot of drama, but it's small human sized drama. You know, you've never killed anybody. You've never like <laughs> robbed a bank. That never, you, like, know you know of. that you know <laughs> that I know of. Right. And um, so, I mean, definitely like level of difficulty, it would have been easier to write a book about, you know, the richest multi-gazillionaires. Although, again, those stories are a little boring. I read the Jeff Bezos um, book and, you know, it was interesting, but it's not really, you know, it's like the smartest guy in high school became the smartest guy in college, became the smartest guy in Wall Street, became the smartest guy in Silicon Valley. Right. In Seattle. You know, it's, it, the, you know, I, I, I never related to him. I never like felt like, oh, I'm just like Jeff Bezos. Mm. So, so, but, but it is hard to like, you know, I want people to turn the pages. I want them to read the whole book. And I don't want the book, I don't know, I don't want it to be cheesy. So this is not going to, mm. I want it to be a timeless book. I want someone to be able to read it in 30 years. Wow. And, and I want the, it to be, at its, at its heart, a narrative book. But I also want it to be helpful and useful. So that's what I'm wrestling with right now. I can't tell you I've figured that out. That's why it takes a year and a half to write a book like this. It's, wow. It isn't something that I could do in a few weeks. Um, so, But yes, I mean, that that's my challenge. My goal, I know what I want my readers to feel at the end. I want them to feel, number one, that was a great story. I enjoyed that. That was a fun book to read. I didn't even remember reading the whole thing. It just, I zipped by. And then I want them to sort of subtly learn like they just kind of know it they don't remember learning it, it right. never felt like a class or a lecture um but i don't know if i can pull it off i hope i can i think i can well so we're we're out of time and this always happens um I, so i love this adam i think what we did yeah. is we we let you tell more of a story on this podcast which is what i was hoping would happen um to get people interested in this story and i think you've done a great job of Giving us the big picture, the story arc of the profession of accounting. You probably know it better than we know our own profession by now. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Which I like. I think that's... I barely scratched the surface. I got to say, it is a fascinating topic. Wow. I was shocked that it was so fascinating. Well, you know, I've, yeah. I've even listened. I've even listened. You know, I've read some books, Adam. You told me to read about the history of accounting, and it and it was very. It, it, accounting used to be tightly tied into the church, which was I didn't know that until you told me that. That's just just weird parts of the history of, of accounting. And that was, you know, a long time ago, but uh, interesting stuff. But thanks, Adam, for coming on. I mean, you're totally. a lot of people in Thrival follow you and, um, you know, your articles in Planet Money podcasters, just like one of our staples, one of our staple podcasts that you created. So, yep. um, yeah, well, that's you, awesome. Thanks so much. It really is a thrilling to be on. I can't wait to wait to meet everyone at Deeper Weekend. And I definitely yeah. will insist on being back when the book comes out and every oh, yeah. Thrival member needs to buy a copy for themselves, for every one of their clients, for all their <laughs> friends. So. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's totally cool. You And, and, and we have to say the honors are all ours because you're, yeah, you're big time and it's, and it's humbling to, to yeah. know that you listen to our podcast. So that's pretty <laughs> cool. So we well, appreciate that. Hopefully we'll get the Davidson bump now. Come on. Yeah, everybody's everybody searching for Adam Davidson. Maybe they'll they'll run into our podcast. That would be amazing. Yep. Exactly. All right, exactly. Adam, thanks for being with us, man. We're going to keep you on just for some secret stash here that people will get to hear in December, but we really appreciate you, man. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Oh, my gosh, Jason Blummer. OMG. That, that was huge. Yeah, it was cool to have Adam on. I mean, hopefully a lot of people recognize his voice and 
have read his stuff on New York Times and listened to the Planet Money podcast. Yeah. He, just a cool dude, isn't cool, he? Cool dude. So has has t- I mean, smart dude too. The secret stash stuff we talked about also extremely yeah. cool. I, and what he's coming to the deeper weekend. That's why is that not like a banner thing on Thrival? So, so uh, if someone all of a sudden decided to change their mind and come to Deeper Weekend, Jason, how could they do that? <laughs> you know what? It's cool. You can go to deeper.thrival.com. What? Deeper.thrival.com hey, and you'll register so, right there. So I was on I was on Thrival just the other day and it looks like there's kind of a badge that comes up on its own, like in the lower yeah. uh right hand corner. It, yeah, it if looks you're like on you Thrival. Pro- just click on that probably take you there, right? Yeah, yeah. That's just go pretty. to Thrival and scroll down and you'll see this magic banner pop up right. on the bottom right and you click at bad that's boy. That's like some that's like some uh hardcore HTML right there that, that does that, I bet. <laughs> it's a, I believe it's JavaScript. Okay, actually. whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Nerd. Uh, <laughs> Nerd. So cool. So this was a good – no, you. some of the questions you asked Adam in the uh, Secret Stash were really cool. Yeah. Well, thank, really cool. Well, and, and I hope people liked his story. His, I, we just let him tell the story, and I thought that was kind of yeah, cool about our I profession. I think people will love Adam Davidson's story of Jason Blummer. Um, so we've got to uh, – <laughs> got to wrap things up. One more shout-out to our sponsor – that's Avalara, and you know they've been rocking our world. For like three years we've been doing this podcast, and we want to give a big virtual hug to yeah. Avalara yeah. and a fist bump. <clears throat> and then, Greg, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Greg Kite, Kite with a Y, not with an I. How about you, Jay right. Blums? They can find me on Twitter at Jason M. Blummer, and we can't forget Jennifer Blummer, who does is our producer, and Aaron Dowd, who is our uh, faithful engineer yeah. to create these shows. We're thankful for them, too. Those guys make our lives so much better. Totally like it. I am starting up a new uh, Twitter account called at Blums, which is a, <laughs> a parody uh, Twitter feed of Jason Blummer. So you go ahead and follow that at J- Jay Blums. It's going to be all about the new art of blummering, which is a uh, a verb that uh, Adam Davidson uh, uh, coined he's, during the secret stash, or maybe even when we were off air. So that'll yeah, that'll be remember. great. Um, but hey, starting year four right now, that's pretty awesome. We're so it's grateful awesome. to you guys, the listeners, because uh, you know obviously this would just be a giant turd in the sink without <laughs> you guys. <laughs> so, so. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Those in are gross. And listen to, to us. Yeah, thanks for joining us on the July 2014 broadcast. We're out of here.